In 2021, Talk About It Outdoors partnered with an industry-leading brand that has stamped its name on the outdoor industry. Cruiser Saddles in itself stands on perfection, and with every climb we make, we elevate ourselves above the rest. In addition to a support to our hunting journey, the men and women behind Cruiser believe in the same principles of life as us. Faith, family, and the blessings of being better as they go in every sit. If your desire to pursue your passions one step ahead of the rest, go ahead and get in the best. Check them out on all the socials or head over to their website at www.cruiser.com. That's C-R-U-Z-R.com. And tell them to talk about it outdoors, boys, and Chasing Weekends sent you their way. The journey of life has a unique way of being able to create tried and true friendships as we go. In forming those relationships, oftentimes good things come to follow. Talk About It Outdoors is proudly supported by Cal Hardy of Arrowhead Land Company. Cal is the leading broker over Georgia and is happy to assist you with finding the place where you can call home. With vast knowledge and an understanding of the ever-evolving real estate market and a unique old-school approach to everything he does, he exemplifies what it means to treat others like you'd want to be treated. Don't settle for being just another number in a phone. Choose Cal Hardy for all your land, home, and commercial real estate needs and become a part of his family. We sure are blessed to have him as a part of ours. Find him on Facebook, Instagram, or give him a call at 770-296-2163. Step back to the times when a feed store was more than just that, and the people inside smiled with friendly faces and provided a place for a talk on life, as well as all your essential farm, livestock, and pet needs. Cherokee Feed and Seed located in Ball Ground, Georgia, with an additional location in Gainesville, are the hometown supplier of all your cattle, equine, and pet needs, with the added addition of being able to keep your deer herd healthy with protein and minerals. They also carry an assortment of hunting blinds and gear, and you can rest easy knowing the people that support local ball clubs and children's sports are who your hard-earned money is going to. The people here greet you with a handshake and a smile, and Cherokee Feed and Seed give more than just a product. They give you a welcome that'll make you return time and time again. Stop in next time you're in the area and tell them you're part of the Talk About It Outdoors family. A few years back, when an overbearing and overgrown backyard became an eyesore, I looked for a solution to resolve. LRS Land Services created a stunning and complete transformation turnkey at an affordable price with their mulching services. Not limited to mulching, LRS can provide turnkey grading and clearing, maintenance, right-of-way clearing, and even development for any and all forestry needs. With an innovative outlook on what is best for your land and a completely different approach than others, LRS can transform your overgrown eyesore into a beautiful landscape of your dreams. Give them a call at 404-889-1105 or check their work out on Facebook at LRS Land Services. Logan and his team are ready to make your land brand new again. Building the foundation of your life starts at the base, and the stronger it is, the better. 
Talk About It Outdoors is proud of our strong partnership with United Concrete and Paving and the foundation of support they provide. Whether your new home being built needs concrete work or that driveway you're tired of beating all the bearings from your pickup needs a paving, Michael and his team can provide any residential or commercial project support you might need from the ground up. If you're tired of tripping over that unsettled patio slab or a future shop build needs a smooth start, United Concrete and Paving can get you going when you need it most. Give them a call at 404-831-3036 and make sure you tell them them TAI boys are where you heard it first. You ready, Nick? Let's do it. All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors coming to you live from the Cruiser Saddle Studio once again. Nicholas Wilson, and Alex DeBoard are going to have a good one for you tonight. We've got a friend through another friend coming on to talk with us on all things guiding, Iowa deer hunting, and maybe even get on some safari talk. It's a rainy night in Georgia, but we're going to make it dry and happy in the studio. Pull up a chair and set a while. This is going to be a fun one. Why is it the closer we get to turkey season, your your demeanor just gets so much more happy? Dude, all I do is blow turkey calls 24-7 in my truck. My wife told me the other day, she, I said, I was watching some guys call competition on on TV, just or on my phone, and I said, I was laying in bed and I had my earphones in, and she she's super nice, but I said, hey, you want one of these earbuds to watch this turkey calling competition with me? She said, no, you call so good on that thing, I don't never want to hear anybody else call. Oh, God, how <laughs> sweet. Kelsey, when you I listen think, to this, you don't got to lie to him. His head's already big enough as it is. I think she was basically just saying, I Shut don't want to hear that crap. <laughs> well, I, I asked you about um, who would be good to watch on YouTube, and you named off some names I'd never heard of. and But I went back and, and listened to, to more of uh, Chris Parrish, and it was pretty neat to see – I, I've I made mention of this that you're a terrible instructor on just blow through it or huff through it. But a lot of the things you told me, Chris told me the same stuff on how to blow those calls. And I've even got some videos on my phone. I was going to show you later. It's, it's, it's so hard to teach somebody to, to do a mouth call. I mean, you can tell them how the right air, but it's not like a pot call or a box call or something like that. You can't demonstrate it. I mean, you, <laughs> you almost need like an x-ray machine, I guess, really to see what somebody's doing or how the air flows. But, um, Tell you something I didn't know, and and it may uh, help somebody that listens to this. If you're having trouble getting the right sound out of it, Chris Parrish said to take and bend that diaphragm, the metal of it, to mm-hmm. where it would conform better to the roof of your mouth. I did that on those calls. Man, made it so much easier to get. I, I felt like I was having to force too much air mm-hmm. out to get a sound. I bent that call just a little bit, and it kind of set on the roof of my mouth better and seemed Every, to work. Everybody's palate's different. A lot of times guys will take them and – They'll cut the tape down even shorter, or, or or they like bigger tape, or all that thing. All that stuff goes into account, and that's why most people. When you see it, when you see somebody that really runs a mouth call, if you ask them how many mouth calls they got at home, I guarantee you they got upwards of twenty. Yeah, just because they don't know which ones they like, which one sounds better. All of them's going to sound different. You buy the same exact one, it'll sound different from the other one. So, 
Well, I, I feel like I'm finally getting a little bit of a grasp of it, trying to figure You'll out. You'll get to blow that thing it. all you want in a few weeks. Old son. I know, I know. <laughs> Along with everybody else. Out. Yeah, yeah, I get to. I probably won't blow it much up there. I don't want to embarrass myself <laughs> in front of the champion of champion callers that are going to be at NWTF. And if you haven't already, make sure you book a book a trip up to Nashville. We're going to be there the 16th through the 18th at the uh, 50th annual NWTF convention. It will be my first trip to it. Uh, Nicholas has been up there. Him and Cody went up last year, had a booth set up. We'll be at booth 308, and we'll be uh, in good company. We've got some really good friends that are coming into town with us. R.P. Scritchfield and the KT team will be there along with Dave Owens. I heard Matt Hughes is going to be back there again. He will be. Do some autographs. So a lot of big names there, good stuff to be in. If you ain't never seen it, at least take a a day trip and come up there and see what it's all about because you'll – You'll see some you'll see some big names there and you'll see you'll see some cool stuff. So Well, going into tonight's episode, it kind of started a while back when we had Dwayne Cook on the Slim Reaper and he him and his father came on and gave us a story that that was really interesting to us because we hadn't had anybody on to talk about bear hunting. It was something very neat. Mm-hmm. It was a, a kind of exhilarating story to hear him, you know, tell. And so that kind of got her in her mind, well, maybe we need to get the guy that they spoke ho- so highly of. Before I went to Iowa and before we'd even went to Illinois this year, I actually reached out to this guy via text and we'd kind of talked back and forth. We got on the phone one day and I think we talked for an hour back and forth telling stories and stuff. But he's a he's a guy that's made a name for himself in in his circle as a you know a guy that for the future he's done safaris in Africa. He's been to Canada. He's been to Alaska and he he runs a well he helps run an outfit up in Iowa um, trophy hunts that. Well, they lay some big hammers down. So without further ado, I want to welcome to talk about it outdoors tonight from Bullet Safaris and Iowa Trophy Hunts, Mr. Sam Beaver. Sam, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Have you have you done any podcasts before, Sam? No, sir. This will be my first one. All right. We even love it even better than we get to be the first one to kind of name the name and put a put a face to it and people that don't know what you look like after they listen to the show they can go over to slim reaper productions on youtube and they'll see the bear hunt that you were actually on with Dwayne and, and his dad so we'll probably get into talking about it a little bit tell the story there but for for everybody that doesn't know who you are can you take a minute and just give us a little bit of a, a little bit of a backstory and introduce yourself yeah absolutely so i was uh born and raised here in iowa um chasing big whitetails and then uh 25 year old farm boy really i always thought i was just going to be a farmer my whole life and uh when i was 16 going on 17 my parents let me go to let me go to africa and do a safari over there and just kind of absolutely fell in love with it um and got to talking to my ph over there my first time and and i was like man i want to do this like what do i need to do and and he kind of told me something that put me off to it a little bit he said listen no americans really do this and are very successful at it um and I was a 17 year old kid and I was like, man, come on. Like I'm going to crush this if I try to do it. Um, so fast forward to when I graduate high school, I get an opportunity to go to a, a wildlife college in South Africa inside the Kruger national park where they had a, a guiding and a professional hunting program. Um, so I applied for the school. They were only going to take about 10 applicants. Um, and they'd never accepted an American onto this course before. And I reached out to the director of the program and I was 18 years old and, and basically said, Hey, I want to do this. What do I need to do? And, um, we emailed back and forth and stuff. And he sent me 
about a 15 page application process. Um, so I applied and everything and, and ended up getting six, um, accepted me and one other American were the, uh, were the first two guys accepted on this course. Um, so I was 19 years old, packed all the stuff I owned and caught a plane flight to South Africa. And, uh, that was seven years ago. Um, I'm 25 years old now. So, um, basically I've been going to Africa every year since I was, since I was 18. Um, got, got fairly good at it, was able not to get scratched, bitten or, or run over by anything. Um, and, and really took hold of that Africa thing and, and tried to make it the best I could. Um, and then during COVID, I was able to, I was able to get a, a gig up in Alaska being a packer just cause I wasn't able to, to go to Africa. Um, so I decided to go to Alaska through a friend of a friend who, who needed some help being a packer. Um, and that was three years ago. Um, finally got my Alaska guide license this last year, which is the hunt that I got to do with, uh, Dwayne and Barry, um, got that. And then I also, after four years of working in Tanzania as an apprentice slinging guts for leopard baits and lion baits, I was able to sit my exam there in Tanzania and, uh, got my professional hunting license there as well this, this past year. Well, going into Africa, what's the one thing that right out of the gate stood out in your mind as, as holy crap when you first got there? Well, it wasn't so much right as I first got there. It was the conversation I had with, um, with the guy, Nathan, I work for now. When I first started talking to him, he said, Hey, you need to realize something. There's a very good chance you may not come home from this. He said, we're going to be way out in the middle of the bush. We're going to be 11 hours from the nearest hospital. You need to know that there's a very real possibility that you're not going to come home. Um, not only from the animals, but from, you know, malaria or getting bitten by a snake, um, or food poisoning. You know, it was, it was the whole idea of, Hey, I'm not going to come home from this. That was really kind of exhilarating to me. Wow. And so what was, what was the one thing that scared you the most out of those conversations? Was it the animals or for me, it'd be the food. I'd be scared to death. I'm like, damn, I ain't gonna be able to eat nothing out here. Yeah. Well, I just had to make sure all my food was fried. Just make sure it was cooked really well. Um, but no, it was more, it was more just like we had, we have hippos that walk through camp. We have the elephants that walk through camp at night. Um, and I mean, you never know. All we're sleeping in is a tent there in Tanzania, and our South Africa lodges are are very nice and um, brick and mortar type structure. So there's not so much the animals there, um, but that that Tanzania thing was a whole different environment for me because we're we're seven hours from the nearest village and we're eleven hours from the nearest hospital. Um, so yeah, the animals were were probably the biggest part of of what really freaked me out first getting there. Cause there wasn't really that many snakes. The mosquitoes weren't really there, even though they are there, but I never really had a close run in with any of those. It was that first time an elephant came tearing out of a riverbank when I was in the back of a truck with four guys who didn't speak English. And we're, we're driving down this little two track dirt road that you can't go 10 miles an hour on. And an elephant could really run you down at 10 miles an hour, I guess. Couldn't it? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> what is the most dangerous game in Africa? A lion, I guess. Well, it, it depends on the scenario. There's so many different things that could happen. Like a wounded, a wounded lion. If, if he gets on you, he's gonna, he's gonna kill you with one swipe of his paws. Um, a leopard's just gonna, 
scratch the heck out of you, um, give you a hundred stitches a second. Um, but the biggest thing I've seen, the hardest thing that's ever been put down with, with me around is a Cape Buffalo. Um, they can take some pounding and some more and, and keep on going. Um, I remember one safari we had where it took 11 shots to put a Buffalo down and he was less than 30 yards. Out of what, out of what first. kind of gun? So over there, the minimum for dangerous game in most of the countries is three seven five um, caliber, and, and I carry a four fifty eight lot, um, and most of the other most of the other guides will carry a four fifty eight or a four seventy or a five hundred nitro express, um, so that they take a whopping and they're still coming. So I just pulled up a four fifty eight lot here, uh, and giant bullet. If you don't know what that is, definitely pull it up. It is a when you are go- when you're going through that training process in Tanzania and stuff like that. Sam, do they do they teach you like marksmanship to learn how to shoot to make sure you can pass that kind of test too? Yes, sir. So that uh that guiding program I did in South Africa, um, it was a very rigorous firearms training portion of it. They started us off with with twenty twos, and then we moved to a three hundred eight, then we moved to a three seven five, and then for our final um, for the final exam, we had to shoot five stations with a four fifty eight, and it was multiple scenarios. Like you have a a misfire, you got to reload. You had to they had a hippo charge simulated hippo charge where we had to put three shots in about a four inch bullseye at uh, it was started at thirty meters. 15 meters and then seven meters and you had to put you know three brain shots in in less than five seconds and these are bolt action guns or lever action or what are they we were shooting all bolt actions um like the i carry a 458 that i have now which is a cz um but a a lot of some of these other phs will carry doubles um like a 470 nitro express double side by side do you keep a pistol also not carry pistols over there no sir oh wow so no no handguns nope well i i guess you gotta have plenty of shells if you're carrying a side by side or an over under a double you gotta have plenty of extra yes. bullets with you and i know we'll yeah, get... as long... go ahead well i was gonna say as long as those bullets hit true i mean you can put you can put an animal down fairly quickly but there's so many variables that go into it right i mean that animal's running with his head up. He's running with it down. You got to make split to second decisions at, at a very close range. And that's how a lot of guys get, get stepped on and hurt. So I know we'll get into Barry and Dwayne's hunt pretty soon, but you know, they offer bow hunts at these places too in Africa, correct? Correct. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of the same lines as hunting a grizzly bear is you're, you're right there with them in case this stuff goes down. And I guess you have the same exact talk that you did with, with um, Barry on this, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, and some of these places will, like da- dangerous game is, is going to be more spot and stock, especially with a bow. Um, but a lot of times you're shooting, uh, you're shooting planes game out of a out of a blind over a water hole. Hmm. Um, so I, you're not necessarily they they could still come through that little blind, um, but majority of the time they'll run off before you have to worry about something trying to get on you. Now, when you're, when you're, and they call it Black Death, right? The, the buffalo there. Isn't that what the nickname is for it? So is it a lot of spot and stalk on them or is it watering holes or how do y'all try to hunt them? So in Tanzania, um, we, we will spot and stalk and we're usually looking for 
these solitary old bulls. Um, we don't want to shoot out of herds just because those are the breeding age bulls. And all of the government regulations, we have a, a set quota every year on buffalo we can shoot. So let's say we get 25 buffalo out of our one hunting area. We're going to shoot the biggest, oldest, nastiest bull we can try and find. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's driving down the road and either cutting a fresh track or going to a known water source, um, picking up the tracks there, and then, and then spotting stock up until we're within shooting range. Now they don't. Do they see well, or can you get within relative close distance if you've got the wind in your in your favor? Uh, do they? Do they? Because I've watched videos of guys walking just out in open grass marsh, and it seems like they can walk pretty pretty close to them. Yeah, you can, um, and that's why we stay kind of in a huddled up group. Is they they can't really pick out a human unless you're strung out and they can see human um, characteristics. And the, all these animals in this, especially Tanzania, are all being chased by lions. Um, so they're having natural pressure from the day they're born. So everybody's on edge at all times. Um, but the more we can stay clumped together and just look like maybe another buffalo or maybe an elephant, you know, they're not too spooky when it comes to that um, until you're right up in their personal space. And their personal space for every buffalo is different, right? It's Some may freak out at 200 yards. Some may let you get within 50 yards before they really start to start to get concerned but like you said it's the wind the wind is the biggest factor when it comes to these buffalo do you remember the first buffalo hunt that you that you had and how i guess fast your heart was racing in that moment yeah and and i wasn't i was watching it from the side of a mountain i was glassing we had uh we had found this group of buffalo and um had put a stock on to them and and the shot was a little bit further back, so and it was, it was closer to the evening time, and uh, so we left that buffalo overnight, and we get up the next morning, and uh, the guy I was apprentice apprenticing under, he sent me up the side of this mountain and said, hey, here's where we lost the track, climb up this mountain and, and figure out where this buffalo is at. So I get up there and, and we're throwing hand signals up, and I said, hey, this buffalo is over here to your right at 250 yards. He'd been bedded down all night. Um, and then they get in there and the buffalo charges and they, they drop them, you know, three shots in, in the face and a couple in the chest. And that buffalo died. And I got to watch it from about 500 yards away. But still, that's it was one of the coolest things I've ever got to see. <laughs> you know, most most people would probably just will never get to go to Africa. We'll always see, you know, National Geographic and, you know, all these herds of animals running and things chasing them. Is that is that similar to what it's like when you're there? Depends on the areas. Um, a lot of our areas, we have these big open plains where, yes, that does happen. We'll see big herds of zebra or impala, eland, sable. Um, but then we have our riverine kind of mountainy areas where it's you're walking through brush that you can't see 10, 15 yards in front of you some of the time. And you're just going off the, the spur, the tracks on the ground. Um, and sometimes we'll just bump into them. Right. I mean, it's, it's such a variety of different things um, that, that it really is. It's hard to kind of. And, and unless you've been there or are planning on going there, it's it's hard to visualize. Is it open season over there on any species of game? So in South Africa, because all the game is privately owned, you can hunt all year round. So the landowner in charge of the their concessions, um, they own the animals. They put their own quota on what they want to shoot. You can go hunt any time of the year. Gotcha. In Tanzania, we have our set hunting season, which starts on July 1st. 
Mm. So then we'll hunt July until about October. Um, and then that's when the kind of the rainy season will start and, and we got to get out of there or else we're going to be stuck for a while. And it's super hot. Is it, is it miserable hot? Is it dry hot? Is it humid hot? It, it's a dry heat. Yeah. Um, it'll be, it'll be 80, 80 to 90 degrees during the day. And then at night it'll drop down to it's, it's cold enough to see your breath. Um, and then eight o'clock the next morning, you're, we're shedding clothes cause it's getting so warm. Gotcha. Is, is all this just water hole hunts over there and spot and stalk, or is there any type of there's, I guess there's no elevated hunting. Is there? Mm, no, sir. Not for, for most things. Um, sometimes we'll shoot like when, when we're hunting cats, we'll, we'll build a blind or, or a machine is what it's called. And it's an elevated platform that you're overlooking a bait site. Um, but that's, that's for cats only. We're not doing that for, for anything else really. Um, you may shoot a warthog water hole on an elevated, but that's not, that's not usually what happens. They got turkeys over there. <laughs> Probably got peacocks. <laughs> we, we got guinea fowl and Franklin. Um, they're not nearly as big as a turkey. Gotcha. Any, any good hippo stories? Yeah, we had a, not, not one what we were able to shoot. Um, but it, we have a hippo pool about 200 meters from, from where our main camp is there in Tanzania. And there's a pot of hippos that live in there and there's about 15 of them. Um, and through the dry season, as some of these other watering sources dry up in this river, we'll have different bulls come in and try to bully their way and, and they'll come tearing through camp and they'll rip down some of our structures. Um, we had to run a bull out, a hippo bull out two years ago. Um, he walked right through the middle of camp, middle of the day. There's no care, but, in but the nothing. World. No, no, they're, Nothing will mess with a big hippo bull uh, unless it's another hippo. Now, they did they mess with you when you're in the rivers or in the water? Uh, if, I've seen boats and stuff get rammed by them. Do they, does things bother them? Yeah, and it, it, it's more during their rutting season. Like when them when they're trying to breed um, is when you'll see you'll see them start to get a little agitated. Or if they have young, they'll they'll they don't like the, some of them don't like the boats very often. Um, and this hippo pool that we're, that we're living next to, we'll catch catfish out of that river and, and them hippos will make noises at you and, and, and stuff, but we've never really had an issue of one chasing us out of there. So once you, once you take a game animal and you guys are on the cleaning process of it, is it clean it in the field and somebody's on watch or how does that work? Yep. So we will, uh, we'll get the animal gutted or cleaned right there in the field. And then it's, uh, sometimes we're, we've been as far as six or seven hours away from camp. So, um, and if it's the middle of the day, yeah, we'll get that animal, you know, cut up to, to help preserve that meat as much as possible. Um, and, and our trackers are absolutely amazing. All of our trackers can scan and cape and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and I can do it as well. Um, but no, most of the time we'll get everything back to camp and, and get it in the shade. And, and sometimes, you know, you don't want to cut that meat up right away and just eat it. You want to kind of let it hang for a little while. Um, but everything will come back to the main camp and, and we'll get it butchered there. Do you have, when you, and I imagine some of these animals take a, a good, good while to clean. Do you have to have somebody on watch guard to make sure no animals are coming in, no lines or anything? Not really. Okay. Um, 
we'll pull the trucks like we'll take the trucks right up to where the animal fell Mm -hmm. um and that that truck is a pretty good deterrent um just in itself Uh, now if it gets later at night like i remember we shot a buffalo right at dark and we built a big campfire and you could hear the hyenas wailing and, and coming in close and um you know we had the rifles handy but that fire was big enough that if something were to happen uh we could have handled it ourselves i tell you thinking on going to africa has has never it's never made me want to do it you know i think about a lot of people they see africa as this foreign land that they want to go and chase something on and i've never had a desire to do that until i watch them sit up in the like you call they call them pits right sam y'all sit up like in in pits sometimes over watering holes yeah yeah pits are, are blinds yeah so they get in these pits, and I would give—I would love to go and kill one of those warthogs. If I could just kill one animal in Africa, it would be that ugly, nasty warthog. Do y'all kill a lot of those? Yeah, we do. Um, but they're so dang. The, the spot and stalking of them is very hard because they never want to stop moving. They're always constantly moving. I mean, I'm sure if y'all have hog hunted before, you know how pigs never stop. Right. Um, so really, the only good way to get after them is is to sit over a watering hole um but at the same time if we if we're driving down the road and there's a warthog we see yeah we're going to do everything we can to try to get on them so out of out of all the animals that you've seen taken over there is there is there one that's a favorite that you've tried and one that's not a fa- that you don't like to eat i i really like the uh i really like sable um sable antelope they they're just amazing and a lot of the smaller guys like the dick dicks the dicas the orbeez their their fillets are just so small and tender it's absolutely amazing um and i'm actually i'm actually a fan of zebra i like zebra um a lot of guys don't just because it's the fact that it, it resembles a horse um so i've i've heard stories of guys not liking them but i haven't found one thing that i would just won't absolutely tear into um so yeah, is no, there, I, I eat everything. Is there a species over there that you just can't absolutely can't eat? I wouldn't eat like a cat. I, I don't know if I could eat a leopard or a lion. Do y'all get a lot just, of just calls hurt. to hunt those? Yeah. So, and it, it based on the quota too, um, like we'll, some years we'll have six leopard on quota, depending on how many areas. And some years we'll have like four. Um, and, and that's all government regulated. That's not us. Um, so if we do four to six leopard hunts just in Tanzania, right, we, we may do three or four more in Zambia or, or two or three more in, in a different country, Mozambique, Zimbabwe. Um, but no, very, I, I wouldn't say very few, but there's just not, the quota is not there for us to do more than a dozen or so every year. Now, does anyone in your hunting party do thermal hunting? Do y'all ever go out at night with thermals? It cannot do that. You cannot do that. No, sir. Wow. Okay. Can you hunt with lights? You can hunt with lights in some of the countries. Um, yep. It's, it's a big spotlight and it's, it's only for the cats. Yeah. Um, like when you spotlighting for, for a leopard or a lion, um, can't do it for anything else. Wow. I know hyena hunting with lights. So, some of the countries, the regulations are different. Yeah. Every country is different. Um, but actually we, I shot a hyena a couple of years ago and it was five o'clock in the evening. It was two hours before dark. We were sitting on a lion bait and this 
this old broken down hyena came stumbling in and he was a male we could determine and uh and and we shot him um and that, that's another thing is that you can only shoot the male majority of, of these species there's some that you can shoot both like the gems buck um but all the cat hunting has to be male it's very well regulated same with some of the impala or the buffalo everything's got to be shot that's a male sam i imagine you being a good old boy from the middle of iowa where there's not a whole lot of city life going on around there how much different is it at night over in the middle of africa (laughs) yeah (laughs) the first couple days it gets to you i mean like there's sounds out there that you're just not quite sure what it is um you know in growing up here in iowa we'd go camp down on our pond and sleep on a tarp yeah you wouldn't want to sleep on a tarp in the middle of it that kind of leads me my next question is is it does a grizzly bear hunt scare you more a grizzly bear bow hunt scare you more or hunting a big game animal in africa with a bow that grizzly bear was probably that's the closest i've come to really like being freaked out Um, (laughs) i bet (laughs) So, and and that's a great, great lead up to go into that story and, and how, cause I want, I want you to tell everyone how that transpired and how you decided to go to, to Alaska and, and what was the thought process? Did you go into it thinking, well, hell I've hunted Africa. I can hunt anything. Or was it, did you go into it with that mindset of, okay, this is just a different, a different beast altogether. that's exactly what it was. It was the opportunity arose because of COVID. Um, I wasn't going to Africa and I'm sitting there talking with, with my boss, Nathan, who, who runs our Africa company. And he's like, Hey, listen, you got to find something to do. So, uh, he had a guy reach out to him and said, Hey, do you think Sam would be interested in coming up to Alaska? And and the last place I ever thought I'd end up would be in Alaska. Um, I was dead set. My heart will always, and has always been in Africa. Um, now that's kind of changed a little bit after spending my time in Alaska. Um, but he called me up on like August 20th and he said, Hey, can you be in Alaska in eight days? And I said, yeah, I guess. So I bought a plane ticket, flew to Alaska. And and that was three years ago. Um, I had to do 60 days of apprenticeship, um, in two different calendar hunting seasons. So 30 days in, uh, as a packer. And then the following year, another 30 days. And then this past year I was able to get my license and uh, now, now Alaska is like I'm gonna have to choose between either Alaska or Africa one of these days, and, and I don't know which one I want to pick. What is a packer? Uh, so, so our moose hunts, um, we don't have any vehicles, four wheelers or horses. Um, so basically, a packer is a young guy with a strong back and a weak mind, and he's gonna throw on hind quarters, front quarters, and an entire moose on his back, hike it up to an airstrip. And then do it all over again when the next moose hits the ground. What about a weak back and a strong mind? <laughs> Y'all got any room for that that's up the, there? That's the guy that comes hunting. Hey, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, like my first year up there, I did five moose packs. Um, in a typical moose, you're going to have at least ten packs um, to get get the entire moose out. The horns got to come out last, um, and if a guy wants, you know, the cape. Um, that's another pack, but I did five my first year, my second year I did six. And then this year, um, even after I had my guide license, I still helped pack out four moose. 10 trips back to the camp or back to the vehicle. 
with a moose. Yes, sir. From from the, from where it died to the nearest airstrip. And, and what's the average distance? I've shot. I, I've been on a moose pack that was two hundred yards from the airstrip, and I've had one that was two and a half miles. Oh my goodness! Jeez. It, it was me and it was me and kid, and it took us basically four days. And uh, you know, you're not going out. You're giving it plenty of time to get light, you know, because there's grizzlies up there. Um, you're giving it plenty of time to get light. You're going to quit just before it gets too dark. And uh, and then just boots in the ground and get after it, really. So take us through the, the bear hunt. And, and it being your first one ever, uh, what, was, what was it like getting to meet some guys? Because I want to kind of paint a picture for everyone that, that may not understand what it is to be a guide and, and the different, you really got to be a people person to be a guide. Cause you deal with all different kinds of personalities, right? Yes, sir. And that, that's what I learned very early on, especially going through this guiding program was it's about 90% being able to talk to people and deal with people and being a therapist or being a drinking buddy or whatever somebody's got going on in your life. You're fixing to spend seven, 10, 14, 21 days in the back country with them, you got to be able to, to have conversations that you can roll onto, or, you you know, you don't want a bunch of silence because then uh, it's, it's just not good morale for everybody involved. Um, do you, yeah, it was, uh, was the, sorry, go ahead. Was the African hunt more like, I don't know, people pleasing as compared to the one that you do in Alaska. Is it more like people you, you know, and you can get along with? Or is it just about the same in, in either place? It's it's really the same. Um, the guys that are serious about doing this, they're they're coming over. They've spent this amount of money. Um, they're all. I, I've never had someone that I was just like, man, I would never hunt with that person again. After so many days, you really get to know a true person, and we're all the same. At the end of the day, we're we're doing it for the love of the hunt and being in new places, experiencing new things. Um, and it, it's, it's totally amazing just seeing into somebody that it's not just a check at the end of the day. It's, it's really getting to know them and know their families and know their story. Um, and, and the people aspect of it for me is, is really the big thing. And then 10% is hunting. And that's what they hire me to do is get them on these animals that they've waited 50 years to shoot or, one guy this past year in Alaska, he's dreamed of Alaska since he was a little boy. He had one hunt in him, wanted a moose, didn't care how big it was, and we had the time of our lives. Now, you said he had one moose in him. Was he of age? Yeah, he, he was a little bit older, um, 65, 67, recently retired, didn't, didn't come from a bunch of money. I mean, he'd saved up his whole life to do this, and he was going to do one month moose hunt, and that was it. That was his bucket list. That's awesome. So does that stand out as one in your mind as one of your favorite hunts ever? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that guy was basically all but in tears when we walked up on that moose. And the only thing he kept saying was, holy shit, this thing is huge. <laughs> That's probably what I'd be saying too is, holy shit, I got to carry this back to the truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that was just, that was a super fun hunt. It was, it was one of those where I felt very, it, it wasn't the biggest moose in the world. It was a nice moose for our area and uh but to him it meant a lifetime of dreams 50 years of his life 
and he'd accomplished his goals. And I was there to help, help do that with him. I think you might've kind of covered this a second ago, but is the clientele that much different from Africa to Alaska? Like, are you seeing this completely like the guy coming to Africa? Is he, is, is he like a Cameron Haynes or what do you see in there? The guys in, in, in Africa, it's not so much of a physical hunt as it is a mental hunt. Um, I mean, we're still walking. We've done 17 miles one day walking out to, tr- to try to chase it. Um, and the guys in Alaska are more physically, they're more physically fit. Um, and I've met some guys that could walk me into the earth. Um, even being in Alaska and I, I get to do this for 10 months out of the year, but, um, the, the Alaska and the Africa just physically are, are a little bit different, but it's same, same mentally. Those, those guys are just absolutely mentally tough. You're riding around in the back of a land cruiser, getting bit by Tetsy flies for 14 hours every day. It'll wear on a guy pretty quick. Yeah. And, and like you said, it's a mental challenge at that point. Mm-hmm. I got to ask what kind yes. of, what kind of socks and what kind of boots do you wear? Up in Alaska, I wear, uh, I have some wool socks. Um, just basically one wool underlayer, and then I wear Sims waiting pants the entire time. Okay. And I got a, I got a 200 gram insulated Danner boot, um, and that's what I'll wear. Just something to keep my ankles from rolling. Um, but them them Sims waiting pants are, you're gonna be wet, cold, and tired the whole time, and and those waiting pants really made a difference for me. I figured you would have said crispy or Kenetrek or something like that, not Danner. And I go through, I go through a lot of boots, um, just in a year's time anyways. And for me, my feet, feet fit really good in Danner boots. They're, they're a little bit wider for me. I, I don't know. I've just, I've always wore Danner. Um, and frankly, I'm a guy that I can't really afford. <laughs> I can't really afford a high end boot right now. <laughs> so the, the guide life is not the glamorous life that everyone might dream it to be. No, not at all. I spend more money on plane tickets and gear every year than I care to admit. Do you now in Africa? What do you wear boot wise? Same thing, Danners. No, I have a uh, um, some Courtney boots, and they were they were designed for, for Africa, um, but they're they're a little lower cut. They're not nearly the same long boots. Um, but you you need something. There's a lot of thorns there that'll get in and tear tear into the to the boots um but I've, I've tried four or five different kinds and, and i really like the courtney's do you wear gaiters or do you wear pants or do you wear shorts in africa i mean what's the what's the dress there typically like for you yeah so i wear uh i wear long pants the whole time just because of the thorns um and, and i'll wear some like something not super heavy but something that's rip resistant um and you don't want to make a lot of noise something that's not going to scratch real loud. Um, and then a collared shirt, usually long sleeve, um, something, cause we do have tetsy flies, especially in, in Tanzania. Um, in South Africa, you can get away with wearing shorts or short sleeves just cause the bugs aren't nearly as bad. Um, and then a big wide brimmed, um, safari type hat. Um, trying to keep the sun off of you. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and the long sleeves help. Um, heat exhaustion is about the last thing that you want to have to worry about when you're over there I wouldn't um, bet so so. Also, <laughs> 11 hours from the closest hospital yeah it's and we we'll try to take a break in the middle of the day find a big shady uh, acacia tree or something to to lay out underneath and 
hydrate and catch a couple couple hours of, of sleep and then you're you're back to it. Now, have you learned the language there? I know we bouncing back and forth. We're going yeah. back, but I want to kind of, I was wanted to ask, have you learned any of the language in Africa? Yes, sir. So, um, in Tanzania, they, this, uh, primary language is Swahili. You have some different dialects for the tribes and stuff, but basically everybody speaks, speaks Swahili. And, uh, my first year, my boss, Nathan put me on a truck with four guys that didn't speak a lick of English and said, figure it out. And we were going to hang leopard baits and, and slinging guts. And I mean, I had to learn pretty quick. So I can, I can hold my fair share of speaking Swahili to some of these guys, but it's only in a hunting sense. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's rough, but it's, it gets the point across. I never realized that Swahili was an actual language until this moment. My whole life, I had heard that. Dad always said, well, he's speaking Swahili. I thought that was a made-up <laughs> something bullcrap that he had told me. So, Dad, if you listen to this, you, you was right. Somebody really does speak Swahili. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's not a tough language to learn. They're, they have a bunch of different words that mean kind of the same thing. So it's it's figuring out the context of, of what the words mean is, is probably the biggest thing for me. Can you Can you say a little sentence maybe uh say uh there's a line over there in swahili uh yeah it'd be like well it's simba in swahili which is from the movie means line so it's like there's a simba um and, and i speak it broken enough that i'm just like simba and then i point and then all the guys are like oh yeah simba. <laughs> oh you hit the bullet on the head for me sam simba 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 and i'm pointing that simba. way <laughs> yeah just say say lion and point and then those guys they get it <laughs> are they good guys to be around oh some of the best people on earth do they genuinely enjoy your company like in the tribes and the people you meet there or are they kind of rude or don't want you there no, so it's the, they realize when we there that they're most of our guys work for us have some of their own small businesses, but four months out of the year that they're working for us, that's most of their year salary, and they're taking home meat to their families. They're living in these villages that they have a a, a well in the middle of the village. That's the only source of water unless you're going to hike down to the river. They're living in mud and clay huts. Um, I mean, when we show up, they, they realize what we're there for. And there was a, re, there was a report um, released a couple of years ago. I want to stay in 2018 where like 33% of Tanzania's gross GDP came from tourist hunting. Wow. So a third of a nation's income and how many people we employ will employ 30 to 60 guys in a camp every year for doing variety of different things. Um, but it's a steady job. It's an income for them and their families. And, and those guys are some of the most appreciative people on planet Earth. I guess it makes you kind of realize how unappreciative we are as Americans when you go to a place like that. Yeah, very much so. Um, just it, the biggest thing that I can just say is they don't have electricity. I mean, they're running off of generators or solar and when the lights go out at the end of the day, the, the lights are out all night. Then they got candles um, and they're eating meat that we're providing for them from our hunting company. And then they have their cows and their cows are to them are almost more important than physical money itself. 
Because it's it's life. It's, I mean, physical money doesn't get you anything if you're you know eleven hours from uh, the nearest town or something. Correct. Yes. Why do they not get to hunt over there all year long? Is it just the laws of the license, or they don't have a winter? Yep, that's they just they don't have a winter, do they? So their their winter, if you want to, it's basically they have a, a rainy season and the dry season, and their dry season, which would be like our summer time, is what they consider their winter time. Um, and then their rainy season, which would be like our winter, is when you can't get into these hunting areas and stuff. Um, and people think poaching. When, when someone hears poaching in Africa, they're thinking about killing of the elephants or the rhinos. But the biggest poacher over there is either firewood or meat poaching, where a guy will go out and set 50 snares. He's going to check his first 10 snares. He's going to have two or three animals there, enough that he can't carry any more physically. He's going to go back to the village and leave those other 40 snares unchecked, whether or not they have animals in it or not. Wow. And none of them have firearms. Um, the guys that do have firearms are they're the ones that are doing the, you know, the elephant and the rhino poaching. Have you ever had any run-ins with any, I guess, gorilla forces or anything over there? I had a little bit of a run-in with, with, uh, some this year. We were, uh, we were checking a, uh, a bait line up this, up this riverbank for lions. And, uh, we went down to check the watering hole. We'd had a bait hit and figured out it was a young male and, and I think a female or, two females and so we went down just to look at the tracks around this water hole and there's three sets of human footprints and they weren't wearing sandals like these guys were barefoot and uh we were about five miles from from our little camp so i get on the satellite phone um with nathan and get on the radio with him and stuff and we have a government official who rides around with us um and they're called game scouts but they're from the government and they're there to make sure that we're taking the right animals and shooting them in the right places and everything's documented and very well regulated. Um, so he said, Hey, we're going to get a group headed your way of, of this anti-poaching patrol. And, uh, you just need to go back to camp and hang out. And, uh, we never had a run in with them. Um, but they were, you know, they were fairly close to camp. We never laid eyes on them, but at the same time, we didn't know. It was, they had soft footprints around their bait pile. And it would they weren't wearing sandals like most of those guys are, so it would oh. have been a group of poachers or a gorilla outfit. Oh, I thought mm-hmm. you meant like actual gorilla. Oh no, no, <laughs> like, like the monkey. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm more. I would be more scared of the people there. I mean, and and I guess you watch movies like I don't know Rambo or one of the Blood Diamond <laughs> or something like that in yeah. Africa, and, and you worry about these people and these that kidnap, you know. Uh, anybody i mean i just to me animals they've got a one-track mind there's their survival and if you're in their way they're going to kill you if you're in their way of surviving well these people I, mm. I would be fearful of someone getting kidnapped or something like that that was i don't know people scare me way more than the, than the animals do yeah in, in, in our areas we don't have so much of that having to worry about kind of the the guys with guns or rifles um, we're more worried about the guys that have the snares because um, most of the time they can't afford a rifle. They're using their machetes to to kill these animals that they catch in their snares. Um, now, some parts of like Western Tanzania where Rwanda butts up to it, yeah, you're seeing some guys come over with some AK-47s that are, are looking to, to shoot elephants and you, they'll shoot you without a, they'll shoot at you with no second guesses. 
Golly. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't got to worry about the rhino. You got to worry about them boys. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the the, the things that have that I've ran in, read into in Africa, it's it's certain parts, and I don't want to start quoting certain areas, but they're it's it's dangerous as hell over there. I mean, in some of these areas, I mean, like he said, they'll kill you just for being there. I mean, they don't care who you are. I mean, you're a dead man just to them, just mm-hmm. like an animal is. Sam, do giraffes bother you? No, giraffes are there's giraffes everywhere um and they're they're pretty they're, i wouldn't say they're scared of vehicles but they know that something's not right when there's a vehicle rolling up um, and we can't even shoot giraffes in tanzania so we'll just drive on by and wave at them i mean it's they're so they're such neat animals it has to be an amazing thing coming from the midwest i mean you've watched magnum whitetails that that you know people in in this country or as as outdoorsmen here dream of seeing but to go there and see these animals that realistically you you watch these in storybooks or on movies and things like that and to be able to see those in real life be pretty neat to do that had to be something pretty exhilarating oh it, it absolutely is and still to this day like i i see a giraffe and it's hey, let's stop the truck and just watch this because this is cool. Like I get to do this for three or four months every year. A guy may do this once in his lifetime, and he's gonna he's gonna really appreciate that moment of hey, remember when we when Sam let us stop and we watched this giraffe just start feeding, or a giraffe and and one of their young and the calf suckling. I mean, you almost take after being over there for so long, you you almost take advantage of all the situations and everything you get to see. And then just taking a moment to stop and look at everything. It's like, wow, I'm really here. I'm really doing this. Does it, uh, coming back to, to Alaska, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. And when you were on the, the bear hunt, the first one there, what was that first moment for you where you realized, okay, I'm, I'm in my, my element now. I'm in the danger zone, so to speak, with this. What was it for you? When we, when we got to about... 200 yards, 250 yards. And, and I had known where we needed to drop our packs, right? We'd circle all the way downwind to where this bear was feeding on. And, uh, and when I started, I'm like, okay, we'll drop our stuff here. And I had the other guide, uh, you know, Dara with us just cause I was still, I had just gotten my license at this point. And, uh, when I start shucking off all my stuff and then I'm like, listen, Mr. Barry, here's my satellite phone. Here's my cell phone. Here's what you need to do with X, Y, and Z. And Barry looks at me and looks at Dwayne and looks at Dar. He goes, why are you telling me all this stuff? I'm like, because there's, if something goes wrong, you need to know. I'm like, I have a tourniquet in my left pocket. And he's, he's like, what are we getting ourselves into? And uh, when, when I saw the look on Barry's face, it was like, it didn't, it didn't really bother me um, too much, but I was like, okay, well, we need to get mentally prepared that this is going to happen. And then when we finally get to that 32 yards and that bear is laying there and he swipes his paws through the, or she swipes his paws through the air and Barry turns and looks at me and his, his bow start I can see it starts to shake just a little bit. And he goes, we're 32 yards from an effing grizzly bear in Alaska with a bow. <laughs> oh, and that's where it, that's where it hits you. Like we're 32 yards from an effing grizzly bear. <laughs> And when he said that, I'm like, yes, sir, please shoot it when it stands up. And he looks at me. I'm like, that's probably not the right thing to say. Um, but like, I saw how excited he was. And that's when I really start to get excited. And then that bear sits up 
is facing away from us. Barry goes to full draw. And that bear's just sitting there kind of looking around, still doesn't have any idea we're there. And he's like, I got to let down. And I'm standing there with my 458 on my hip, like cool as a cucumber. But inside, I'm like, please don't screw this up. Please don't screw this up. And um, like I was just hoping the bear wasn't going to do something funny. And Barry had like a little, there was two little trees um, that he had a little window to shoot into. So right as he goes to let down, that bear starts to turn broadside. And so Barry goes to full draw and there's that one little tree in the way. And then that bear starts to walk through it. I'm like, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. You need to shoot him right now. And then Barry lets that arrow go. And uh, it was just a little bit back. It, it would have been a lethal shot. Um, but who knows if it would have been within 100 yards or a mile. And where that bear was headed into this thick patch of alders, I really did not want to go climbing in there with an angry grizzly bear. So I immediately started shooting. And when you cut down on it, it was it was probably back to reality for you. Like this is my job now. This is my, this is where I fit in. Correct, yes, sir. And I, and I had told Barry going into it. I said, the second you release that arrow, I'm going to take a step in front of you. I need you to re-knock an arrow and stay behind me. And so I, I just remember him. And if you would have asked me before this video gets released if that bear was growling, I would have said no. I didn't hear anything. Like, I was just so zoned in on, okay, where do I need to put this bead on this bear? And that bear does, like, a almost a complete 360, and then it's kind of facing up the hill at us. And when my first shot from my 458 hit it square in the chest, I'm like, oh, man, we're in trouble because that bear did not go down. That's and scary. Then, uh, yeah, I'm sitting here in awe. Just I'm reliving that moment because yeah. you know, for us, we got to sit here and hear Barry and Slim talk about it and give us an idea about what it was like. But hearing it from Sam's point of view gives a whole different perspective on it. Yeah, and it was. I mean, we kept shooting, and that bear just kept going. And when we finally got it cut open um, and get and got the cape off of it. There was two thought, two shots through the boiler room. It had a shot in its chest. It had another shot through its spine. Like that bear was dead on its feet. It just didn't know it yet, and it was trying to. I wholeheartedly believe that bear was trying to get up the hill at us. <laughs> let, let me ask you this: though. when you, if you guys are pursuing something like that on an archery hunt, or I guess, in, I guess archery hunting is probably more critical because you're trying to get so close to these predator, not predators, but these animals. Do you, do you mm -hmm. and I, I, we didn't ask Barry this, but are you guys like, do you make them send a video of them shooting or do you shoot in camp just to make sure that they are who they say they are? Or do you just not, trust not, that they're a, a good shot with a bow? Yeah. Uh, most, most guides I'm sure can attest to this, but you spend the first day, you know, depending on how long on this, you spend the first day or two grilling a guy yeah, and trying to just, get to know them without them actually knowing it um, before you're going to put yourself in that situation. And I talked with Barry and, and Slim quite a bit um, and they were showing me some videos. So I knew, I knew, you know, I, I knew Barry you. could shoot. Um, but there's some guys like that. One guy came into camp, camp claiming he could shoot a moose at a thousand yards. Well then when I get him to 160 yards and he screws up the shot, it was like, yeah, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> yeah. Now you, you're a, and we'll get into, I guess we talk a little bit of whitetail hunting here because you're from Iowa and you also got an Iowa, but 
has hunting those type of animals changed the way you deer hunt or, or approach whitetails or anything like that? I still, next next to a leopard, I probably get more excited about seeing a whitetail than just about anything else. Has it changed just your tactic of hunting or how you set up on them or anything like that, though? Or is it pretty still pretty normal how you hunt them? No, it's it's more, if I could spot and stalk whitetail, that's what I would personally like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but but hunting from tree stands, ground blinds, uh, elevated stands, um, that that's all that's all stayed stayed about the same um but if i could do it just for myself i'd love to spot and stock a 200 inch whitetail um some of our clients just can't do that you know they're a little bit older you know they're just not in the same kind of mindset that i am at that point do you generally find yourself wanting to chase whitetails just as hard or would you go back to africa and chase game there if you had a personal choice on it depends on the time of year and where i'm hunting um, fair enough i guess, I guess, I'd, uh, I guess yeah alex you're stupid you can't hunt uh this in the winter time but no i mean i for me it for me i i guess not ever having to exp- or getting to experience africa i i want to chase giant whitetails in in any midwest state that we can coming from georgia i mean we grew up you know 100 inch deer was a giant to us and and we talk about it all the time the the thought process behind getting the opportunity to go to the Midwest and chase deer is, is something most won't ever get to experience. And it's a lot like Africa for me, a guy that's been to the Midwest. I'm never probably going to get to go to Africa to chase game. So I've got to kind of live vicariously through, through somebody telling stories like yourself. Yeah. Well, in chasing big whitetail, right? I mean, they get big for a reason because they're smart and checking out a 180 inch deer from the side of the road and being like, okay, we know he's right here. How do we get to him? I mean, it's, it's very similar in Africa to that aspect. Um, and these white tailed deer, they're, they're just so dang smart and it's such a challenge. Um, I, I love chasing white tail. That'll be my all time favorite thing next to, next to chasing cats, but it's, it, it's very similar in, but in very different ways, if that makes sense. Now, when you guide these deer hunts, are you able to sit with the guys or do you just drop them off? Just drop them off. And then, um, I'll go out and scout. I'll drop a guy off at one farm and then I'll go sit either in my truck or um, walk up to a gate or sit in a barn and then, you know, glass the field and, and figure out what time these deer are coming. Um, but no, we don't, we don't sit with them. I got you. A lot more intimate in Africa as far as clientele goes, I guess the time you're spending with them. Yeah, correct. Um, but these deer hunters, they're, we're still sitting we're still sitting at our lodge and swapping stories all night and it's just as much fun. I mean, I've known we have a lot of repeat deer hunting clients, which is very cool because they've got to watch me grow and they love listening to my stories. And I love hearing their stories about, Hey, they took their first grandkid out hunting this year. Um, but it, but it's, it, it is kind of a different um, situation when it, when it comes to that as well, because we have more than just one person in a camp right. um, when it comes to deer hunting. So, Sam, you know, we're kind of getting towards the end of this thing here, and there's a question that I guess I've got to ask, and it could be hunting-related in Africa. or And I go back to Africa because we've never really got to talk to anybody about that. You know, we've heard a lot of whitetail stories and stuff, but what is the, the one scariest moment that you've had in Africa? And it can be with an animal or it can be with, uh, you know, a sickness or anything that, that sticks out in your mind while, while being over in Africa. 
so my first year, my first year in Tanzania when I was on a bait truck, um, I had hopped off the truck with, uh, with one of our trackers and we were walking down this dry sandy riverbed, just checking water holes. And we were going maybe a mile, mile and a half. And then we'd hop out of the riverbank and call the truck and come in. But anyways, we, uh, we round this river bend and there's a young bull elephant. Um, and he, he had just been like freshly kicked from the herd. Um, just cause he'd started to mature. He'd gone into must, which is their breeding cycle. And, uh, he was just tearing limbs down and stuff and just causing a ruckus. And, um, we were on this corner and he just goes absolutely mad. And so we go scurrying up this riverbank and that elephant comes up right behind us. And that's six tons of fury bearing down on you. And it's like, yeah, that, and I was a 19 year old kid at that point. Like that was the, that was the most scariest thing I've ever had happen in my entire life. <laughs> Biggest thing had ever been after you before was a Holstein bull back on the farm somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, that, that made me like, that was probably my first eye opening experience to like, Hey, listen, I'm here. I'm doing this. Like <laughs> you gotta nut up and, and take care of things. If, if something were to happen. Sam, what's the biggest thing between all the places that you get to guide? What's the biggest lesson that you've learned and you've been able to teach yourself? Mm. Just, just to enjoy the moment. I mean, there's been plenty of times where I'm sitting in the back of a truck and the sun's going down in Africa and there's a herd of zebra in the field and you're watching that sunset and it's like, yeah, I'm really here. Or it's, it's sitting on the side of a mountain in Alaska as the sun's coming up and we're glassing moose and you're hearing, you're hearing just the wildlife, the moose crashing horns or a cow calling and just living in the moment and trying not to take advantage of the places I've been, the people I've met and everything I've got to see just because not a lot of people get to do this. Um, as far as I know, I'm the only person in the world that holds a Tanzania professional hunting license and an Alaska guide license. Like I've really got to see some of the, the greatest places on earth that no one will get to see anymore. Just with the encroachment of civilization. Um, I've got to hunt in some of the areas where Teddy Roosevelt may have gone through in, in Africa, or I've been on a mountain in Alaska where no one has ever set foot. Um, I mean, that, that's the biggest thing for me. That's pretty awesome, man. The hell they got cold chills <laughs> thinking about that. I mean, that's, that's pretty neat. You, well, it takes a lot to give me cold chills <laughs> thinking about stuff like that, but was was Slim your only camera guy so far, or have you had multiple camera people? We uh, in in Africa, the past two years we've had a um, a client and his son that have they're they're not really in the whole filming it and promoting it. They're just filming it for themselves. Um, but yes, Slim was the first one that was like, "Hey, listen, this is for a YouTube channel. Like, we need this certain kind of." shot for for what's going to happen and and that was a, a whole totally different challenge for me um just was in the it, long run i mean was it aggravating i mean and i asked that you know and with all due respect but what, or was it just something different it was it was something different um i wouldn't i wouldn't say it was aggravating at all um because uh, slim was very good at it and he knew what he needed to do and he would ask us to do a couple different things, um, but it wasn't like it was inconveniencing us. It wasn't like it was going to screw up 
the hunt itself where, Hey, listen, we need to shoot this animal right now. I, no, I can't wait to do an interview. Like this needs to go down right now. Right. There was nothing like that. Um, but he, he's the only guy I've ever had to do it. And he, he seemed to do a pretty good job. So I love it. I can't wait to see the video. I can't either. It should be out in a couple of short days. Sam, um, if you ever want to travel down to Georgia, you, you, you got to give us a, give us your word. You'll at least uh, do everything you can to come over and sit in the studio with us and, and cut one again. Cause I'm sure the, the journey that you've been on over the years has been something pretty special to hear. And I'd love to meet you and shake your hand because your appreciation for everything that you've been able to do is, is pretty, pretty good, man. And I, I appreciate that side of it more than anything. Yes, sir. I, I appreciate that big time. Um, I still need to shoot a turkey in Georgia. So, come on, brother. <laughs> we hey, need to talk turkey hunting. I know, but that's what I was going to say. I, I was going to say we need to have Sam back on in the next couple weeks and just talk some turkey hunting because you're so easy to talk to and so polite, and you can you can definitely tell that you mix with a different different people all the time and have different conversations and and um, yeah, I think we need to get back get, get you back on in a couple of weeks because we're already in an hour and. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I could keep asking I, I questions. I could, I could too. And, and I, I think more questions will spawn after this, after people hear it, and they'll, you know, people respond to us, and they'll, we'll, be, we'll think back after we hear the episode. Think, man, we should ask this, we should ask that. So, we need to have you back on in a couple of weeks, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'd appreciate it. It's a, it's been a big time talking with you guys, and you know, just hearing different questions that I haven't quite been asked before really gets my mind turning about a lot of things. Sorry, I'll, go ahead. No, I'm good. I was going to ask him what, what are you? You don't have nothing you're guiding right now, so when do you head out again after turkey season? Yeah, I may uh, I may try to go up and do some spring bear in Alaska. Um, okay. But no, right now it's just so show season, so I'll do the uh, – go down to that SCI show in Nashville, maybe do the NWTF show, and then got the Iowa Deer Classic. So. Do, do y'all have a booth at the NWTF? No, sir. I'm just going to go down and, and walk around and, and say hi to some people that uh, – that asked if I was going to be there. Well, we'll be at 308. So yeah, you so you got to come by and see us. <laughs> I'll plan on it. Yes, sir. Yeah, we got a booth at number 308. So just be sure and stop by and remind us who you are when you walk up because we may be forgetting. We may be cloudy eyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by that time of day, we probably will be. Um, <laughs> Sam, for for what uh, you've brought to the table here, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And it, at your age, you know, my only takeaway from from tonight, if there was one that I could pinpoint, is your appreciation for everything you're getting to do. Um, and and I think anyone that listens to this show can can appreciate that. We've got a lot of sentimental folks that listen to our show, and I think you fit right into that fold with it. So. You know, keep keep safe, be safe out there, and and continue to do what you're doing. Because I, I could honestly see you way down the road uh, doing some some pretty amazing things. That I I hope that Nicholas and I are fortunate enough to get to hear some more stories. We're going on a moose hunt, old son. I ain't going on no moose hunt. I ain't going on no grizzly bear hunt either. Hey, can I get like a discounted warthog hunt in uh <laughs> in Africa? Is that a thing? Can you just come over there and shoot a warthog? If you can talk Nick into coming over and paying for a, a whole hunt, yeah, I'll get you a warthog. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go film you, and you, I get to shoot a warthog. <laughs> yep. Real quick, what does it cost? So, to, what does it cost to get over there to do a hunt in Africa? Just depends on what you really want to do. Um, Bottom in. We can. <laughs> like the, yeah, can I come over and shoot like a lizard <laughs> or a, you know something cheap? <laughs> 
you can go to South Africa and have a, a great hunt for seven or 10 days. And I mean, you're talking 10 to 15,000, um, about the cost of an elk hunt out West and shoot four or five animals and have a big time and get to see some whole different world. But yeah, you know, say 10 to 15, um, just depending on the animals you want to shoot. Well, don't expect me to be going to Africa no time soon, Nick. I ain't splitting that with you, buddy. <laughs> I can spend a lot of trips to the Midwest for ten to $15,000. Yeah, we're going to have to stop, man. I got so many more questions keep popping up. So. Well, write them down and we'll, we'll, we'll get Sam on. Maybe we can spin it up after NWTF with you, Sam. That'll be a good time frame for, for us both to, to talk. And like I said, you're, you're always welcome down here in Georgia. You've been a pleasure to speak with tonight. You were a pleasure to speak with the first time I've talked to you. You and I have kind of text back and forth through deer season and, and I'm, I'm elated to finally get to get you on a show. And I'm, I'm sure people are going to appreciate getting to talk or get to hear this. Yes, sir. Yeah. It's been, I'm finally glad we got to, got to make this work. It's like I said, it's the first time for me and, and hopefully we'll get to do a couple more of these. Absolutely. Well, we'll see you at NWTF, man, and uh, I can't wait to meet you in person. Sounds good, guys. All right. Have a good one, Sam. Yep. Y'all as well. All right. All right, everybody. Mr. Sam Beavers, uh, dude, I, I could go on and on and on uh, with the questions that, that could I come from that. What'd you do? Tear that thing off the wall finally? You dropped your, I don't your know. bookcase? I don't know. Let's go, buddy. We got to load up. We got, we got a pretty good special guest coming in next next week. We do, and yeah. I think people are going to enjoy that one. I do, too. Local it, guy, duck hunter. If you haven't already, go over and check out the Talk About It Outdoors website. We've got some really neat things that are coming there. You can go on and uh, enter your email and get a, a discount code there if you want to grab some apparel from us. We've got some new stuff that's going to be dropping out very soon. Um, the biggest thing that I can say after doing that show there, if you ever have an interest in, in chasing game in another country, you need to find somebody that's educated like Sam is to, to do it. Definitely. And I think that it's going to be something that, uh, or if you want to go to Iowa or Alaska, yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got land in Iowa. They do guiding there as well. So, um, you know, we appreciate you listening to this episode. It's a, it's kind of a weird night for us Thursday nights. Just me and you here. That's it's been right. a minute since it's been me and you here. It is. It's been a while. Back to the back to the OG. Nobody listens. No, it's Thursday night though. No, but we can tell them it's Thursday <laughs> night. I'm headed to Tennessee squirrel hunting. I get to talk on that next week. You're gonna run a perfectly good duck hunt. Screw a duck hunt. No, I'm kidding. Duck hunt. That's what we got to talk about with them boys next week. They're duck hunters. Duck hunters. First time ever we've had a duck hunter in studio. What they called the foul Dixie Falco. Dixie Falco. I love it. I think it's going to be a great time uh, with them in studio. We always love having somebody in with us. I got to figure out what I'm going to cook. Might get pizza. That's enough. Y'all come back and be with us when you can. And remember, smile as you go, but don't forget, mouth of memories. Building the foundation of your life starts at the base, and the stronger it is, the better. Talk About It Outdoors is proud of our strong partnership with United Concrete and Paving and the foundation of support they provide. Whether your new home being built needs concrete work or that driveway you're tired of beating all the bearings from your pickup needs a paving, Michael and his team can provide any residential or commercial project support you might need from the ground up. If you're tired of tripping over that unsettled patio slab or a future shop build needs a smooth start, United Concrete and Paving can get you going when you need it most. Give them a call at 404-831-3036 and make sure you tell them them TAI boys are where you heard it first.
A few years back, when an overbearing and overgrown backyard became an eyesore, I looked for a solution to resolve. LRS Land Services created a stunning and complete transformation turnkey at an affordable price with their mulching services. Not limited to mulching, LRS can provide turnkey grading and clearing, maintenance, right-of-way clearing, and even development for any and all forestry needs. With an innovative outlook on what is best for your land and a completely different approach than others, LRS can transform your overgrown eyesore into a beautiful landscape of your dreams. Give them a call at 404-889-1105 or check their work out on Facebook at LRS Land Services. Logan and his team are ready to make your land brand new again. Are you in need of a decluttering barn or garage slap full of stuff you just don't need? Or is your construction site needing a dumpster? Give our buddy Tony at Georgia Junk and Dumpster Rental a call. With services ranging from junk removal to roll-offs, Georgia Junk is here to help with any and all removal needs. If it's time to get that parking spot back or the boat needs a place inside, Tony and his team can surely assist. Servicing Cherokee, Cobb, Bartow, and surrounding counties, give them a call at 404-406-3501 or check them out on Facebook at Georgia Junk. Clean up the yard in short order with Georgia Junk. 